Well, we're starting a new series this morning. It's called Royalty, Noble Living in a Needy World. And you might be thinking, well, how long is this series going to last? Well, I mentioned to uh, Pastor Ben, to Jeff, that it may last all year because it's a look at Matthew's Gospel, a systematic look at Matthew's Gospel. And so it's going to take us some time to digest this. Now, we'll look at other passages and we'll look at it in the context of the whole of Scripture, so we'll bring other texts to bear on it, but uh, I think that Matthew's Gospel, is, and we'll introduce that this morning, will help us to understand what it truly means to be a follower of Christ, to live like royalty, to live noble in a needy world. So this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 3, so if you'll stand with me, turn to Matthew chapter 3, it's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, and we see Jesus coming on the scene very public in his ministry. And the one who introduces him named John the Baptist, who it says in verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers. Now, John the Baptist obviously had not read Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's not what you say. And he said, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham and our father as our Father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he is thoroughly, uh, he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee, and John, or to John, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me." But Jesus answered and said to him, "Permit it." to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, and when he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word and equip us to do the Word of God and not be hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, the message this morning is more specifically titled, His Majesty the King. His Majesty the King. Because it's an introduction of Christ. You know, when someone is introducing the President of the United States, they don't have to describe anything about his background. They just simply say, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. If the Queen of England comes into the room, they don't have to give anything concerning her resume. They just say, Her Majesty the queen, and she gets the respect and recognition that she deserves. And that's the way royalty is introduced. Jesus comes on the scene, and in our hearts, we just need to bow before his majesty today, recognizing who he is in all of his glory, not pretending that we're somebody we're not, but understanding who we are in him. And that's my desire as we go through Matthew's gospel that we will learn to be who God has called us to be and not pretend that we're somebody that we're not. I remember hearing this story a few years ago of a man who was desperately looking for a job and he went down to the local zoo and they said, well, we're not hiring any zookeepers or anything like that, but I'll tell you what we do need. We do need a gorilla. And he thought, well, I'm not a gorilla, so obviously I can't get that job. And they said, well, you don't understand. We've got to have a gorilla. We don't have a gorilla. We need you to dress up in a gorilla suit and get out there and, and, and swing around and, and walk around and act like a gorilla and, and convince everybody that you're a gorilla. So how much does it pay? Well, it, they said it would pay him pretty good. So he took the job and he put on the gorilla suit and he got out there and he noticed that he could just kind of walk around and the crowds would come by and look at him. But if he was really acting up a little bit and goofing off in a, in a big way, that the crowds would stop and watch him. And he finally got the courage to take one of these rope swings and just begin to swing. And every time he would swing, the crowds would gather. And he thought, this is kind of fun. This job is a gorilla. They think I'm a real gorilla. I'm swinging. And and, and the higher he would swing, the bigger the crowds would get. And and one day he got to swinging so high. There was such a large crowd there. And then the rope broke. And when the rope broke, he went and landed in the cage with a lion. And the lion begins to walk toward him. And he realized that his life is about to end, and he begins to cry out, Help! <laughs> Help! And nobody could hear his voice. Everybody was so busy, ooh and ah, and they couldn't hear him yelling, Help! Somebody help me! I'm not a real gorilla! This lion's going to eat me! And the lion's getting closer and closer, and it looks like it's about to pounce. And about that time, the lion says, If you don't shut up, we're both going to get fired. <laughs> well, the moral to that story is... Trying to act like somebody you're not, or something you're not, could get you in a lot of trouble. And Matthew is going to help us to understand who we are in Christ. Too many Christians aren't living like royalty. Now, each gospel presents the essentials of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet each one of them are very unique. When I say the essentials, they all present Christ who was virgin-born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day victoriously, and is coming again. That's the essentials of the gospel found in all four gospels. But when we read about Mark, Mark paints a portrait of Christ as the anointed Messiah in power. And it talks about the spiritual power that Christ exhibited everywhere he went. Luke speaks of Christ as the Son of Man. John points out that he is the divine Son of God. He's the Word that became flesh. And John wants us to grasp the deity of Christ just as much as Luke wants us to grasp the humanity of Christ. Matthew, writing primarily to a Jewish audience 
in the beginning, but obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to all of us, wants us to see that Christ is the promised King of the Jews. And not only the Jews, but even in the words of John the Baptist, we see that he wants to be the King of the world, that we all might recognize his Lordship. The religious Jews didn't know how this kingdom would start. They thought when Messiah came that he would overthrow government and establish the kingdom there in Jerusalem. But the first coming of Christ, even as Isaiah had prophesied, he would come as a suffering servant. He would come to give his life as a ransom for many. He would come and and lay down his life so his kingdom might be established in our hearts. The kingdom of God might begin in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, who put their faith and trust, that's where his kingdom would begin. So Matthew, a tax collector, a job that made him appear to identify with the enemy, that made him appear to many of the Jews as a traitor because he represented even the Roman government as a tax collector, comes to faith in Christ, and we'll read about that later in the year in in chapter 9. He would follow Christ, he would identify with Christ, and he would receive this gospel and arrange his story to persuade readers to do and experience exactly what he had done and experienced. And so we'll look at the launch of his public ministry, we'll we'll see that this morning, we'll see the Sermon on the Mount this fall, we'll spend some time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the the greatest sermon ever preached, Uh, I, I believe it just tells us how to live the kingdom life in this world. Uh, We'll begin to read about the mission and vision for ministry in in chapters 9 and 10 as we get close to Thanksgiving and Christmas. We'll go back and look at the birth narratives. After the the new year starts, we'll look at the parables of Christ and and the kingdom. When Easter comes, we'll look at Matthew's account of the king who would lay down his life for the sins of the world and rise again victoriously. And then Matthew also brings in the next spring after Easter, we'll look at these wonderful chapters in Matthew and and wonderful verses that deal with the second coming of Christ and uh, the fact that even though his kingdom is being established in the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls who believe in him, the king is coming again and this world will recognize him as king. And so you see how when we speak of royalty and identifying with the king and realizing we're subjects of the king, Matthew just lays out what it really means to be an authentic believer, an authentic Christian, the real deal. So how do we get ready for this? If the king is coming, and we want him to to do something in our midst now, and we look forward to his second coming as well, then how do we get ready for the king? If you've got company coming, you want to be ready, right? How do you get ready for the king? I just want us to point out a few things this morning, and, and this is the first one found in the preaching of John the Baptist, the second in in the very character of who John the Baptist is. But first, I want you to see that there's a need for the alteration of the heart. There's a heart attitude that needs to change. It's, It's the attitude of repentance that needs to be established. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching in verse 1, and then in verse 2, his message is, repent... For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is in your midst and you don't even know it. The kingdom of heaven is there. So we we need to repent. The word for repent in the Greek is metanoieo. It just simply means to change your mind and change your heart attitude. 
Repentance is not a good work. It's not one of those things where we say, you know what, if you repent of your sins, if you could just stop doing it and you start to live right, then you can be saved because you quit seeing and started living right. There's teaching that, that's going around today that would convince us that, well, you know what, if we can, only, if we can quit sinning and, and start living right, then we could be saved. That's not what repentance is all about. Repentance is the other side of the faith coin, if you will. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But to trust Christ as Savior and Lord means that we have to quit trusting in sin and self. And so by faith, we turn from sin and self, we have a a change of mind, a change of heart attitude, and we trust in Christ. We say, I'll quit trusting in me and I'll quit doing my own thing, whether my actions are evil or religious. See, when we speak of repentance, when we speak of a change of heart attitude, a change of our mind about something, some of us need to repent. We know that we're kind of sowing our wild oats, we're kind of living in sin, we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, and we're trusting in those things to bring pleasure into our life, and we come to a place where we say, you know what, that's never going to satisfy, and I need to repent Turn from that and trust Christ to meet all of my needs. Others of us, it's not things that we would say, oh, that's evil or that's bad or I shouldn't be doing that. It's our religious efforts that we're depending on. And he's going to confront the Pharisees for that even in this chapter as he comes preaching and offering this baptism of repentance. Christ would redefine baptism, but in verse 6, John the Baptist looks forward to that. It says, They were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This, this baptism was a baptism of repentance that you were saying, Listen, the things of this world are, are worth nothing to me. They were making room for something better. And see, the problem usually isn't simply getting people to repent from sowing their wild oats or indulging in things that they call sin. But it's to get them to turn from self-righteousness and saying, I'm my own man. I can do my own thing. I'll live my life the way I please. They're singing with Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley, whichever version you like best. I did it my way rather than I did it God's way. And so in verses 7 and 8, we see the Pharisees needed to repent even from their religious dependence upon their own good works. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, and they they were checking things out. They said, when exciting things are happening, people come check it out. We ought to be excited about our faith and what God's doing in our life. But he just got real transparent with these Pharisees. He didn't say, oh, we've got some religious men of God here. He said, no, you brood of vipers, you snakes. You're thinking that your good works are going to accomplish something for you. Who warned you of the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Changed life. See, repentance, turning from sin and self and trusting in Christ, it gives us an attitude that prepares us for inward transformation, not outward confirmation. See, the Pharisees were all about trying to get people to change from the outside in. 
if you can act this way and, and, and be this way. And usually that way was just like them. And sometimes we're very pharisaical in our teaching and in our preaching and in our witnessing. We're trying to tell everybody else, if you could just be, be like me, if you could live like me, look like me, act like me, dress like me, talk like me, where God is saying, no, I want to get hold of their hearts and make them more like Jesus from the inside out. And it takes the heart attitude of repentance to begin to experience that, that we're not enough. As Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And it's not only the religious world that needs to hear that message. Today there is nothing more prevalent, more fast-growing than what we call secular humanism. And it's infiltrated our college campuses and many of our high school campuses where it's all in the curriculum and it's in everything that you are basically good on the inside. And we just got to help you see how good and how wonderful you are. It's in our music. It's in our philosophy. You are just by nature good. And that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that by nature we are sinful and in desperate need of a Savior. And so secular humanism that says, you know what, we're good enough. And, and, and one day, if there even is a God, you know, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. And I'm going to be okay. And that is self-righteousness. And Jesus, or John the Baptist, looks at the Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers. That's a sneaky, evil message that you've got. And it's not preparing hearts for repentance and real change from the inside out. As we embark on this journey, I've got a question for you. Are you willing to allow God to change you? Say, well, Pastor, I've been saved. Listen, I have too. But as I was even praying this morning, I said, Lord, I know there are changes that need to take place in my life. Because none of us, not even the Apostle Paul, was able to say he had arrived, right? So by God's grace, I want to give the Spirit of God permission to bring change in my life, to live a lifestyle of repentance, uh, uh, of turning from sin and self, and trusting in Christ alone to do what he wants to do. And, and so as we make a preparation for the king, we need to have the right heart attitude. This attitude of the heart has to be one of repentance and brokenness before God, turning from sin and self and trusting in Him alone. The, the second area that I want to present this morning has more to do with who John is in his character and in his calling here than what his specific message was. As we talk about the annunciation of the herald, he was a herald of the message that he was given as the last in a line of what we would call Old Covenant prophets. John the Baptist, after 400 silent years, the closing of the Old Testament, John the Baptist comes on in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, more specifically in the spirit of Elijah, and he's announcing that Jesus is coming on the scene. The messenger is not to be equated with the message, but they are always connected. And so John the Baptist provides us an example of what we should be about today. That we need to prepare to identify with and magnify Christ in all that we do. And so look at verses 3 and 4 in this text. It says, he comes on the scene, and it says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed with camel's hair. 
with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and honey. Now, some people like to debate on what the locust was. It really the locust plant? There's a homophon there in the, in the um, Greek language that the word for the locust plant, or what became known in English as a locust plant, and the word for the locusts themselves, the, you know, the grasshoppers, <laughs> the crickets, whatever, whatever it looked like. In, in the Greek, it was kind of the same word. It sounded the same. So some say, this is really the locust plant. Others say, well, Leviticus does give permission for the Jews to eat locusts. So it's talking about literal locusts. But the point is that that's not the point. It, it's that he had a simple diet. He had humble means. He wore just the kind of clothes of somebody that was just getting by. And and so John the Baptist came in the appearance of someone like Elijah, a prophet, with no indulgences, living on the bare necessities, a simple diet just to survive, because his message, his message was such a big deal. And this is what I want us to understand from the life of John the Baptist that we can all embrace. The things of this world, everything this world has to offer, those things that we think are so important. You know, when we get so upset if our team loses and so excited if our team wins. We are so upset if we don't get the promotion. So excited if we do. So upset if we don't get a raise. So excited if we do. The things of this world will pass away. But the message that we leave our family and our friends and our community, all that we do to magnify Christ, that will last forever. And so in John the Baptist's appearance, he was communicating, listen, there's one thing that's important to me, and that's that I magnify the Messiah who is coming on the scene. The King is coming, and you need to be ready for the King and His kingdom. Now, John the Baptist seemed quite strange. And I'm not saying we need to go out and wear camel's hair and eat a stated diet locust and honey. Well, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll take that off your hands anytime, but maybe not locusts. But think about the New Testament parallels. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4 says that when we're living the life that we're called to live in Christ, teenagers, I want you to hear this. He says they will think it, people who don't know Jesus, they say, he said they will think it strange that you don't run with them anymore. Isn't that cool? They will think it's strange that you don't run with them anymore. And it doesn't say you're not going to be in their life and be involved and be a witness to them because you have to be. We heard a great lesson on that yesterday morning. You have to be able to connect with them and share the gospel with them. But when they're involved in behaviors that are not pleasing to God, they're going to think it's strange. They're going to say, you know what? That, you may not be eating grasshoppers and wearing camel hair, but they're going to say, that person's strange. Most of you in your workplace, most of you in your school, if you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to say, you're a little bit strange. You're, you're a little bit peculiar. As a matter of fact, Peter also said as much in 1 Peter 2, 9, when he said, you are a royal priesthood. We're talking about living like royalty. Noble living in a needy world. He said, you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own peculiar people. Look at the person next to you right now and say, I told you you were peculiar. We're a peculiar people. It says, you're God's own special people. We're different. We're strange. And the darker this world gets, 
The more things change, even in this nation that we live today, the more people look at Bible-believing Christians and say, you guys are weird. You, you guys are out there. But your announcement isn't just something that's changed you. It, it, it's something that's going to change others. You know, why do we... Why do we do advertising? Why, why are there all these funny commercials? Nowadays, they have to make the commercials good because they take up most of the time on any programming. But whether they're promoting diets or financial institutions, products we may should or should not embrace, they try to communicate, I'm enjoying this, it's changed my life, and you need it too. And yet, Christians are the ones, more than anybody else, who should be able to say, I'm enjoying the greatest relationship that could ever exist. That's a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you need that too. And by the way, we're not selling you anything because it's free. You can embrace it and receive it by grace through faith in Christ. Folks, we're offering a free gift. We need to make sure there's no false advertising. Make that announcement as John the Baptist did as a herald trying to magnify Christ in all that we say and do. Look at verses 11 and 12 in this passage. It says, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance. I'm getting you ready for something. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He whose sandals I am not worthy to carry some Translations speak of loosening the sandals, untying the strings of the sandals. Uh, to untie the strings was interpreted typically that mean the same thing as to carry or to move or to place somewhere. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. He's going to redefine baptism. He's going to redefine baptism. It's going to be a picture of being immersed in Him, in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, and the Spirit of God that comes to live inside of you. And His winning fan is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn. He's going to find that true fruit, that right fruit, those who truly believe in Him. And He will burn up the chaff. With unquenchable fire, the religious phonies, he's going to point that out one day. And then in verse 13, Jesus comes on the scene. His majesty the king from Galilee to John at the Jordan. Jesus is coming to be baptized. Now Matthew doesn't give us this, but in John chapter 1 and verse 29, John lets us in on something, and that is when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he pointed to him and he said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an announcement. What an enunciation of who Christ is. And we need to have that same mentality. John would point out, John the Apostle would point out that John the Baptist said, I must become less, that he become greater. I must be a nobody, that he becomes a somebody because of what he's doing in me. He's pointing them to all that Jesus is. And as we prepare for God to do a mighty work in our lives, we need to have this attitude of repentance and saying, Lord, I'm willing to change anything in my life that you desire to change in me. I give you permission to do that. Do a cleansing work in me so that you might do a work through me to proclaim you to others. 
without false advertising because I want to be genuine. I want to be real. I want the change that I'm promoting for others to happen in me. And finally, you see this, this affirmation from heaven at the baptism of Christ. He comes to be baptized, verse 13. John tried to prevent him. John didn't feel worthy. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill the, all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Again, Jesus would redefine the meaning and the picture of baptism. It would become a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Jesus did not need himself to repent of anything because he was the lamb without spot or blemish. But he would go to a cross. He would become sin for us and go to a cross and die in our place and rise from the grave. And so, as Jesus comes on the scene, John baptizes him. Jesus comes up out of the water in verse 16. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Suddenly a voice came from heaven, verse 17, This is my beloved Son. This is my Son, and I love Him. And I am well pleased. To be well pleased meant to take delight. He says, I take delight in Him. Robert Lewis in our men's fraternity study says that every son needs to hear that from a father. This is my son. I want you to know him. I'm proud of him. I am well pleased with him. I want you to listen. I take delight in him. And if an earthly father can say that about an earthly son, how much more was the heavenly father saying, this is my son. I'm proud of him. I want you to see him. I want you to hear him. I want you to know him. I take delight in him. How can you not? Mark 9, 7 says that he even said the words, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Matthew and Luke, I believe that's just understood. He's there. Listen to him. Do you want to live with an assurance and an affirmation from heaven? Listen to the Spirit of God. Acknowledge who the Son is in your life. Do you want to live with greater purpose and greater passion in life than you're living with right now? Are you just content to kind of go through the motions? I'm doing the same old, same old, every week, every day, same thing. Or do you want to live with a renewed passion and purpose in life saying, I am truly on mission for Jesus Christ, then listen to what the Spirit of God is saying about the Son of God in your life. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul was writing the book of Romans to Christians in the Roman Empire that was very contrary, very hostile. Christians were being persecuted in in ways that would blow our minds. And in the midst of that, Paul says, here's the kingdom. Here's what the kingdom is all about. It's, It's about righteousness, being in right relationship with God. Peace, that you can sleep at night as a result of that. That you can rest in the midst of persecution. And then he says, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And a lot of us don't have joy in the Holy Spirit because there's not the righteousness and peace that's overflowing in us. Not not self-made righteousness, not 
because somehow you got it all together without God, but because you're trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Christ alone. That attitude of the heart, repentance, brokenness before Him that brings peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in your life. So we need to prepare to live like royalty in a contrary world. Nobility in a needy world. We'll discover as we study Matthew what nobility is all about. What does it mean to live nobly in this world? And begin today with an attitude of repentance, commitment, a commitment to identify with Christ in His kingdom. And to listen to that voice from heaven. It's not a voice exactly like John the Baptist heard when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So as we open the Word of God and we listen to the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts, that we're hearing, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm well pleased, get after it, stay after it for my glory, and you'll enjoy life to the fullest. That's where I want us to be. As individuals, as families, as a church, reaching our potential in Christ, living like royalty, living with nobility in a needy world. What are they needy for? They need to see it. They need to see that there's something real, something genuine, something authentic about Jesus, something that can change your life and that it's real in you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?